here, which is good, because um, we want them to hear the message today. So, kids, if you're, those of you, hey, uh, I can call, is it, I, well, I won't call them by name, because, well, I know, I know these kids, but anyway, kids, I'm looking at you, <laughs> and you over there, write down something from today's sermon, okay? A lot of what I'm going to say is going to sound like, rah, 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 you're not going to understand a lot of it, but... Something you're going to understand, you're going to write it down, and I want you to ask your mom and your dad about it tonight or this afternoon and say, hey, what, what, is, what did he mean? And what, is, does, does, what about bad stuff happening to us, trials? Does, what are we, how are we supposed to think? So talk to your parents about that. Your parents are the primary disciplers in your life. They're the primary people, or should be, the primary, that's not the sermon, but they're, they're, <laughs> they're the main people in your life that should be pointing you to Jesus, okay? So you ask them questions. Ask them hard questions. My, one of my kids asked me the other day, they said, did God know that Adam and Eve would sin? And I said, yes. And they said, then why did God create Adam and Eve? And I said, well, that's a good question. Um, and then they said, so if God knew they were going to sin, and God, why, why do all those things, right? So those are, uh, those are good questions to ask. You want to ask hard questions, Okay. And you adults can ask hard questions too. We want to be thinking God gave us minds and, and God created us. Sorry? What was your answer? I'll, I'll, that's not the sermon today. So leave it to Judy Carter to shout from the back. So anyway. Sorry? Cop out now. It'll all end up getting on a rant for 15 minutes and we'll never get to the text. So it's a good question though. And it's, it's a long answer. So... Um, I do remember when I was younger, I, I, I really looked up to this pastor who had a huge impact in Southern California on the West Coast of the United States where I was born and raised. And, and part of the reason he had such a big impact, he was not a dynamic guy. He was an old bloke, that, nothing wrong with being an old bloke, but he was, he was an old bloke that, that talked slow when he preached but one thing that he did is he just was faithful to preach God's word chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And the Lord used him to really, you saw a, a whole movement of people, particularly in the 60s and 70s, called the Jesus Movement. And these were hippies that were coming to know Christ. And sort of their, I guess, in a sense, their ringleader was this guy named Chuck Smith. And he started this whole movement that came out of the Vineyard Movement called Calvary Chapel. And Chuck Smith was, like I said, this is how you, honestly, I, I know I probably am exaggerating, but, but he did sound a lot like this. Now, in the book of Exodus, like it, that's how he talked. It was just monotone. And he wasn't pacing the stage and using his hands, but he just was committed to teaching God's word, to unleashing God's truth, one verse at a time, as it were. And look, it had a massive impact. Not because this guy was anything, but it was just because God's spirit blesses his word and the preaching of his word. God's word does not return to him void, right? And, and you could see it. It was so clear. You've seen that with certain churches here. Pop, pop. You've seen that with certain churches here in Australia, some churches are built upon emotions or built upon a music program, but some churches are actually built on God's word and you see it flourish and grow and thrive. And so 
That said, I wanted to meet this guy named Chuck Smith. He's now gone on to be with the Lord, but this was years ago. And I sat down with, uh, I didn't sit down with him. I went up to him afterwards and I said, Pastor Chuck, Pastor Chuck, please, you know, tell me, what should I know about ministry? I feel called to be a pastor and, you know, what's, what's helped you grow in all this time, you know, 40 plus years or 50 years or whatever it was of being a pastor? What's, what's been the one thing that's, that's helped you the most? And I, I expected him to say, well, you know, it's just reading my Bible or it's praying or it's whatever. And he said, well, young man, the one thing that's caused me to grow, which I'm grateful for, are trials, suffering. I'm thinking, that's not what I wanted to hear. (laughs) You know, I wanted to hear like, you know, do these five things and your church will be awesome. And, you know, but I was like, okay, trials. Yay, that sounds great. Sign me up. I remember driving home with April that night going, that's not, that's, that's like the last thing I wanted to hear, right? But it's interesting, and as Ralph just read that text for us, we see that trials in and of themselves, right, right they, they, they are painful, they are difficult, but if we look to Jesus, they produce this thing called steadfastness or perseverance or endurance, There is a benefit to trials. And I want to say this at the beginning. I really want you to grasp this. This this idea of perseverance, this idea of staying power, we could say, is essential for spiritual maturity. If you do not find yourself capable of walking down the hallway called perseverance and staying all the way to the end of that hallway, what, wherever it is leading you, you can never reach spiritual maturity. If we do not get this into our lives, friends, it can affect our marriages, our jobs, most of all, our relationship with God. There's a little phrase that says, When the going gets tough, what? But that's really opposite of what James says, isn't it? So I want us to look at this passage in James chapter 1. And we are now going to unpack sort of the who, the what, and the why of this, though, because obviously we haven't been in the book of James. And I've wanted to preach this sermon because I've been talking with a number of people in this church that have gone through some significant trials and suffering over the past few weeks. And even as I've talked with some of you, though it might not be this particular season that there's trials, maybe it was a month ago or a year ago or five years ago. If you live in a fallen world, it is inevitable. James doesn't say, hey, count it pure joy, count it all joy, if you happen to have trials. Right? It's whenever. Full-gone conclusion when this does happen, when this does occur. So let's talk a little bit, though, before we just begin unpacking that specific part of the text. If you look at chapter 1, verse 1, let's think about who the, who, what is this, right? Who's James? Notice he says, James, a servant of God. Now, James is actually the half-brother of Jesus, now, I want you to imagine growing up, I say the half-brother because 
James was conceived through Mary and Joseph and Jesus through, right? Virgin birth, Holy Spirit. So he's a half-brother, but he's growing up with Jesus as his brother. Now imagine growing up with Jesus as your older brother. Now, I know you're in church and you think, oh, that'd be really cool. No. (laughs) Imagine an older brother who did everything right. And you get really mad at him one day and you snap on him and you go, yeah, well, Jesus, what do you think you are, perfect? Well, (laughs) it's funny you say that. You know, why can't you be like your brother Jesus? Because I can't. He's the Messiah. You know, uh, obviously he doesn't know that. In fact, James even had a hard time. Didn't even believe if you read the Gospels. Um, There's points where James uh, was, probably thought his brother was insane. And, and it wasn't actually until the resurrection where Jesus appears to him. And, and it notes that. He appeared to the half-brother of Jesus. It appears to his brother James. Where now you, and then you see in the book of Acts how James becomes this pastor of this megachurch in Jerusalem. But it's interesting how James writes in this book. He doesn't say James, the uh, 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 half-brother of Jesus, by the way. I knew him back when. No, what does he say? James a servant, a doulos in Greek there, a slave, a slave of the Lord Jesus. It's really interesting. Now, that's a bit of the who of James. And what about the what? Notice who he writes to. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who's he writing to? To the 12 tribes in dispersion. That's a peculiar introduction. You don't actually see that in the New Testament very often where there's tribes listed. Um, This was likely a Jewish figure of speech that sometimes referred to Jewish people as a whole um, because most Christians at this time were Jewish. But it's interesting to the 12 tribes scattered or in dispersion, which is reflecting what happened in Acts 8.1. Look up here at, on the screen. In Acts 8.1, there was this big persecution that broke out against the church. Do you see it here? On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. Remember, that's where James is the, church, is the pastor of this church. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So there's this massive persecution that, that happens, and people lose their jobs, their, their businesses, they're probably separated from their families. They've lost their homes. They're essentially refugees. And so James writes, and this is a circular letter. Does that make sense when I say that? It's a circular letter in that like when Paul writes, he writes to the church in Galatia, the book of Galatians, when, etc. Ephesus, Ephesians. This book, this letter was meant to be circulated throughout to these people that are scattered, Right? and they're dispersed. Now, don't miss what he says there. It's hard to pick up in English, but if you look again, to the 12 tribes in dispersion, greetings. I know that probably doesn't pop much for you, but in Greek, it is kairin, kairin, which actually means rejoice, be happy. Okay, if you knew someone who had lost their businesses, had been separated from their family, 
When you look at refugees now today and some of the awful things that happen, would you go up to them and go, hey, rejoice? What kind of person would do, what kind of sick person does that, right? Well, James knows the reason he, he does that is he's not just being flippant about their suffering. He knows the value of their suffering ultimately produces steadfastness, perseverance. Because it's the only way to prove that their faith is actually genuine. Now, why is this idea of steadfastness or perseverance important? The first thing I want us to think about is it's the only way to prove that our faith is genuine. Would you agree with me that there are situations in life where something looks genuine only to find out later that it's actually false or it's a counterfeit, right? Be that money, uh, someone passes you bogus money, or if that's might be a, something on the internet, you know, whatever it might be, something looks genuine, but if it's put to the test, you realize that it's false. When I was a kid, I watched a, an ad on television about these interesting shoes called moon shoes, right? And it was this interesting ad where it, it would go, moon shoes, da, 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 and showed these kids jumping, like leaping over buildings essentially, right? Not really, but you know, it's like they're jumping really high. And I thought, here's a picture of it here. If you, if you look, look up, click a couple if you don't mind, Jacob. Keep going. Next one. There we go. All right, so yeah, look at that. And I'm white and I can't jump. And white man can't jump, if you know the 90s movie, right? So I think, wow, you know, I really, I would love to have, I want to get me a pair of moon shoes. So I asked my parents, please, I'll do anything if for my next birthday you get me a pair of moon shoes because I want to be like Jordan, slam, you know, whatever. This is when Jordan was, anyway, so I'm dating myself here. And uh, give me some moon shoes, please. So guess what, you know, the 30th of November came up. I opened up the present, and guess what? A pair of moon shoes. Now, when I put these moon shoes on, I thought they looked genuine, right? They seemed like I was going to jump to the moon, but I could jump higher without them on. Right? Then with the actual, like, it, these were these clunky, terrible, like, moon, they should be like cement shoes, or, you know, like, they were just, and they were, now, now, I say all of that because it, what I perceived is it looked like it was the real deal. It looked genuine. Now, listen, there are people who think that what they've done is given their life to Jesus. But all they've really done is decided to adopt a religious lifestyle or to be a part of a community. And the only way to tell the difference is to put them in some hot water and see if they stick with it or if they bail. Do you understand? That it looks genuine. It seems to be, but it's not. Our faith can be that way. 
The only way to prove that our faith is genuine is to go through tough times and trials and to see what really happens. Turn to 1 Peter. Let me show you this. I want you to see this with your own eyes. It's just actually the next book to the right. Someone can yell out a page number for me. That would be fantastic because I have a different uh, numbers. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. Dan actually... We looked at this last week. 1,014. So, Peter writes, think about this idea of suffering, right? He's writing to people that are as well suffering. And he says in chapter 1, verse 6, he's talking about they've had to go through some trials here, right? In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various what? Trials. Well, so that, there's a reason, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold and perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The tested genuineness of your faith. Did you hear that? So James, his point in this text and really throughout the entire letter is that if a person's faith is genuine, it will prove itself during times of trouble. I used to be a youth pastor for a long time and there were heaps of kids in the youth group that seemed like they were, you know, to use the cheesy 90s phrase, on fire for Jesus or had a heart after God, or whatever, only when they got into uni, what happened to their faith? Done, gone, toast. But it wasn't genuine. It looked real. It's like the moon shoes. Seemed like it was genuine, but it was counterfeit. Why? Because they actually were put to the test. That's what James' point is. If a person's faith is genuine, it will remain through. Now, that's not to say, hear this, that we don't sin in the process. It's not to say that we're, we go through a trial perfectly. But there's, some, there's, some, there's a measure of the person's steadfast clinging to God in that trial. Does that make sense? Now, I want us to go back to James because it's the only way trials, really, staying power, this perseverance, it's the only way to prove that our faith is genuine. But here's the second thing. It's the only hallway to wisdom and maturity. It's the only hallway to wisdom and maturity. Here we go. I'm going to try messing with this. There we go. It's the only hallway to wisdom and maturity. Now, how many of you ladies in here uh, really enjoyed your time of labor? Yeah, probably not, right? And yet, at the end of it, you knew that it's worth persevering through this because at the end, there's going to be my baby. I'll be able to hold my baby. At the end of that labor, you knew that you were going to meet a child, your child. 
It's the same with trials. It's the only hallway to wisdom and maturity. You know, you were able to look beyond the pain of your labor to the reward that you would get at the end. And, well, I guess until they became teenagers, right? And then you, did, and then you wanted to return them, <laughs> right? But, but nonetheless, you knew. And, and some of you ladies, you did it again and again. You're like, you didn't just like go through labor once, but you, you, like, you went through it several times, right? <laughs> Romans says this, we rejoice in our suffering because we know that suffering produces perseverance, Perseverance, character, and character, hope, and hope does not disappoint us. You rarely ever hear people say, you know, you know the time when I felt closest to God, when I was clinging to God the most, when I was just on my knees in prayer, is when life was really, really good. (coughs) Typically, we cling to God the most when life's hard and when trials come. Usually when someone messages me at 1 a.m., and it's okay if you message me at 1 a.m., sometimes I won't get it because I'll be asleep. Message Rob instead. <laughs> Sorry, Rob, no, I'm just kidding. No, but it's usually not like, oh, hey, I had a really good time reading my Bible at Three Trees this morning with a flat white. Don't message me, actually, if you're going to do that at 1 a.m. But, but someone, what do they say? I need prayer right now. I'm really struggling with this. I'm really suffering through this. But that's the time when they're clinging to the Lord the most. That's the time because it's the only hallway. Now, now uh, trials often, like I said, will do something to people, right? They shape us. They affect us. But there, I want you to see what this idea of perseverance should look like. So look back at the text here because these are going to be three sort of different ways to respond to a trial that James lays out for us. Three different ways. But let's look at the text one more time. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. It's interesting, that word, isn't it? Not just one kind, not just persecution, though that's in large part what they're suffering, but various kinds. Well, why would you do that? Why would you do that? Well, he says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So when we talk about what does this idea of endurance, perseverance look like? Well, number one, if you want to write this down, is it's a different attitude. It's a different attitude. Well, they won't do it with the Greek. We rejoice instead of complain. We rejoice instead of complain. Here's the key to understanding this, friend. When James says, count it all joy, look carefully at the language he uses. That is not commanding you how to feel, it's commanding you how to think. He's commanding us how to think, not how to feel. Who feels good when suffering happens? No sane person. But if you know God, you're able to think properly in light of the trial. Does that make sense? 
Because our values determine our evaluations. If we value comfort more than character, then trials will upset us. If we only live for the moment and forget our future, trials will only make us bitter and not better. See, God is allowing, God is sovereign over this trial in your life because it causes you to fix your eyes, not to what is seen, but what is unseen. The Bible says, therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. Yet inwardly, we are being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles or afflictions are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. But let's be honest, when a trial comes, it is hard. It is natural that our emotions are involved in it. It hurts. You're not going to say, oh, great, this is I'm wonderful. Yay, rejoice. But what we need to be aware of, friend, that the term there, again, it's commanding us how to think. This is an accounting term. Does that make sense? It's an accounting term. It's like uh, in light of the fact, like you're able to weigh something up. You're able to weigh the situation up. That's what James is saying. That's a different, that's how we rejoice instead of complain. But it's tempting to let that trial shape our thinking and be cheesed off at God, cheesed off at the church and everything around us and become jaded and bitter. We, we friend, listen, you have to avoid bitterness like the plague when a trial comes. It will absolutely consume and destroy you. Something that's helped me when I have a trial is to think about things that God has done in my life of which I'm grateful for and write them down. Put it near my nightstand. Write it in the bathroom, whatever. Somewhere I'm going to see it, on the, on the fridge, etc. You can think of things like, you know, look, I've been forgiven of all of my sins. All of my sins. My sin... Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. When trials should come, though Satan should buffet, right? Though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate Think about that. You don't bear your sin anymore, friend. You are going to stand before God guilty. But because of what Jesus has done, you're able to stand not guilty because of Jesus' righteousness. No matter what suffering you go through now, as painful as it is, all of that goes away eventually. And you stand in eternity worshiping God forever. You have a reservation in heaven. Philippians 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. It's a command. I will say it again. Rejoice. The man who wrote Philippians 4.4 was writing from a prison. Okay? 
He wasn't at three trees, you know, with his feet propped up, sipping a latte. Rejoice in the Lord. Woo! He was in prison, and it's not going to end well for Paul in the same th- here on earth. Get his head cut off. All right? But he commands, rejoice in the Lord. He's not saying, hey, you know what? I know. Just roll it up, roll it up, roll it up. Just No, you rejoice, you delight in God. You, 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 you pray and you read about God and the more you see God, the more you savor God, the more you delight in God. John Piper says, God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in who God is. If you're satisfied in who God is and you trust him and you know him, no matter what trial comes, you can say, you know what? I am going to just go with this open palm and say, here I am, Lord, I trust you. I trust you. And all my joy and all my satisfaction and all my hope comes from you anyways. All my greatest desires, my affections are found in you. Not in this trial, not in this person, not in this car, not in this house. All of those things are passing away, but my joy ultimately is found in you. So that's how we rejoice instead of complain. Commanding us how to think, not how to feel. Now, what else does it look like? What does this idea of perseverance look like? Well, also, it's a different reaction. We stay instead of run. Look at verse four. Verse four, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The best way out of a trial is through it. But you know, we live in a a world full of microwave ovens and throwaway relationships. If you're not happy with your job, bail out. If you're not happy with your marriage, get a new one, have a fling. If you're not happy with whatever it might be, do this. James is telling them and us, we need to be men and women who look different from the world. And I believe If you want to write this down, I think this is helpful. Really, we need to make a commitment here, friends. If we're going to look different, if we're going to stay instead of run, you have to say this. Listen, if I have to compromise my morals or values to remove the hardship or heartache, I simply won't do it. If I have to compromise, if I have to sin, in order to get this or in order to get out of this, I won't do it. Does that make sense? If I have to sin in order to get this or sin in order to get out of this, I won't do it. If the only way to keep a relationship with someone is by moving in and living with them in a sinful relationship, don't do it. If the only way to get ahead in your job is to lie and cheat, don't do it. It's not worth it. Galatians chapter 6 verse 9 says, let us not become weary in doing good for at the proper time we will receive a harvest if we do not give up. See, if these scattered Christians denied Christ, life would go back to pretty much normal, right? All they had to do is just say, 
you know, I don't, Jesus, don't know him. I'm going to deny him. And they could get their jobs back. They could have their homes back. But God wants his disciples, his followers to be different. Stay instead of run. And lastly, what does this idea of endurance look like? Look at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So it's a different attitude, right? We rejoice instead of complain. It's a different response. We stay instead of run. And lastly, it's a different prayer. We ask for wisdom instead of deliverance or wisdom instead of just simply escape. The, the word picture James uses here is a stormy sea, right? How, how many of you have ever been, in fact, if, probably even just yesterday with all the wind, if you go and you see the the sea, it's blown, it's, it's, it's at a storm, it's going left, it's going right, it's going all over the place, right? It's unstable. And James says a mind like that, that wavers, is not completely convinced that God's way is best. It treats God's word like sort of good advice and not commands. What he is saying is either, look, you're going to cling to God's word and trust him and go that direction or you're going to be blown about and tossed back and forth. What you can ask yourself is, in this context of my suffering, it's fair to ask, all right, what is going on here? Is there unconfessed sin in my life? Or am I caught up in the backwash of living in a sinful world? This is the sin of someone else. What does God want me to learn? Often the Lord is trying to sign us up for character 101 and we don't show up for the class. It's interesting how James here says, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God. We need wisdom in a trial. We lack it. (laughs) And we need it. And notice the flow of the argument too. It's not, if any of you lacks wisdom, all right, let's see here. Should I buy a red carpet or a blue carpet for my house? Lord, what do you want me to, oh, the Lord spoke and he wants me to get a blue carpet. That's not what the text is saying. Or, or oh, let's see here. Lord, should I, should I marry Jill or, oh, sorry, there's already a Jill in here, sorry. I mean, should I marry, uh, you know, should I marry, oh, whatever, I'm not giving names because then it'll just, mess up the whole thing. Lord, should, should I go left or should I go right? Well, that's right. What, is, what, is, what does the Bible say? If any of you lacks wisdom, he should, God help me. And God goes, go right, go right. Okay, I'll go right. That's not what the passage is saying. It, it'd, be, it'd be dangerous to live that way. Let, let me tell you why it's dangerous. There was a man who looked at all of the denominations of his day and he said, you know, I'm just not satisfied with all these things. Granted, the gospel is in this denomination and this church, etc., etc. I'm just not happy with all that. 
I want a revelation. I want new, fresh revelation, baby. Come on, God. And God spoke to this man and said, all of those denominations, even though they're clear on the gospel, right? They're all false. They're all wrong. You gotta get it right. Here are these golden tablets. And he said, and this is what the right religion is. And it all sprung out of this verse. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God. Because he's going, and you know who this man was, by the way? Joseph Smith. The Mormons, the cult, right? And, and, and so you, you see how important it is that when we're in a trial, and no doubt, look, I don't know what was going on in Joseph Smith's life at that time. No doubt there's probably some kind of trials and suffering. He obviously had turmoil in his own soul. But you see how important it is that we read God's word in its context, right? A text without a context is a pretext to a proof text. <laughs> do, you, do you know what I mean? Like you, you don't just cherry pick the Bible for what you want it to say. And if you do, guess where you end up? Danger, friend. When trials come, it is essential that you ask wisdom. God, what are you trying to show me? What are you trying to teach me? I need help. It's essential, friend, that you lean into your local church, if this is your local church. It's essential that you are honest with your growth group, if you're a part of a growth group. It's essential that you have Christian friends, that, that you're... There, oftentimes when we suffer, our thinking, our sight is very short-sighted. It becomes myopic. It, we, we, we get so sort of bogged down in the, in the actual trial. Do you know what I mean by that? We can't sort of see beyond. A Christian brother or sister says, friend, let me, let me remind you what the Bible says. And able to point you out of that or point you to where you should have your hope anchored. That's why we need each other. The church, the local church, God's plan A for our sanctification and growth. And so if any of you lacks wisdom, right? It's a different prayer. We ask for wisdom instead of deliverance. So we rejoice instead of complain. We stay instead of run. And we ask for wisdom instead of deliverance. I pray that this church is one that when trials come, because they will, respond with a different attitude, rejoicing instead of complaining. It's a different response. We stay instead of run. And it's a different prayer. We ask for wisdom instead of deliverance. May God help us to do so. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for your word. May it take deep roots in our hearts. Help us now to, as we head out these doors and live this week, live with the view that, Lord, you are sovereign over all of our suffering. May our deepest satisfaction and affections be found in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.